Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. It's a bit of a sparse group here, and you're all like in the corner. <laughs> so everybody that is out in the foyer, if you want to come in and sit closer to the front so it's not so lonely up here, that would be nice. But otherwise, you want to stand with us, and we'll get started with singing. your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and lands. Set your church on fire. Win this nation back. Change the
all take a seat. Is it on? It is. It's on. Okay. Uh, welcome, Liberty Lake Church. I'm Ben Albrecht, and I'm my main claim to fame is I'm Nancy's husband, and she's the one that hugs everybody that comes through the door. First off, happy Father's Day. We've got dog on the run. Everybody's welcome to grab a hot dog. The men, you can have two. Yeah, and a bag of chips on your way out. Uh, on, it's a busy week early in the week. If you can get through when you've got it made. Uh, um, Monday the 21st, we've got the study of Gospel of John, taught by Tyler Whitlatch, and we've been to that, and I'll tell you, if you've ever wondered, what does the Bible say in the original language? It's really cool to hear, because he knows that stuff. So, if you get a chance, come by. It's at 6 o'clock in the fireside room. Uh, also on Monday at 6 o'clock, well, it's going to be tough to be in both places. A craftsman's ministry at Jacob Tritt's shop. Still welding and grinding and painting and that kind of stuff. On Tuesday at 5.30, we've got the family prayer meeting here. Um, so come and join the family uh, in prayer. And if you're not the kind of person that prays out loud, that's okay. You can just sit in your seat and pray. Uh, God still hears you. And then on Tuesday the 29th, so... Got a little time for that one. The Ladies Fellowship, it's at 6.30. And uh, please, please, bruh, bruh, please bring a salad. Almost made it. Uh, bring a salad to share. That's a tough line, Julie. Um, and that's pretty much it. And Travis? Than fifty dollars if he did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, <laughs> you, you want to stand and join us as we continue singing.
the shadow of death. Your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I
that is true. You never let go of us. Even though we are prone to wander, you mm. never let go. Let's sing how great you are.
Take a seat. Good morning. Oh, that was get back on track here. I uh my son got married a month ago today. And uh, I had the honor to be able to lead a couple of hymns in the middle of that service, and one of them was How Great Thou Art. And that was kind of a, it was a great, great moment for me. And uh, like I said, just kind of singing there, bringing memories back. It was kind of neat. Okay, so Shane is uh, out of town this week, and... Uh, Looking out there, it looks like a lot of dads might be out enjoying the sunshine with their family on Father's Day, so that's that's not a bad thing. So. Well, let's start with, uh, I always like to start with the words from Psalm 1914. David said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we're going to continue today with uh, with the book of Jeremiah that that Shane's been on. Now, and it, it's a it's a long book. We have to sort of cover big chunks of it, and uh, but focus in on things that are important. And uh, I think I told you last time that on the plan that we were on at that point, at the rate we were going, it would be something like 2027 when we finished. But I think we've managed to pick things up a little bit. We're up to chapter 14 now. Um, book of Jeremiah has been uh, an interesting an interesting one to study and go through. Uh, you know, the Bible, for a large part, the, especially in the Old Testament, the prophets were all about 
telling the people what God was saying, but exhorting them to turn from evil and repent so that they could be saved. Jeremiah, um, what we see there is a message that doesn't really say that. It says, you know, folks, I've been telling you this for a long time and you haven't been listening, so here it comes. And he proceeds to lay out the punishment that God is going to inflict on Judah. He doesn't say if you turn, you can can stop this. He says, I've had enough and, and this is what's coming. So it's a it's a a book I think that it's a little hard sometimes to to uh, to read and hard to present because it can come across like jar like God is is pretty harsh but um, not really I don't think it's you know at some point when you keep tell a kid to stop doing something and they keep on doing it you have to intervene right. So the book of Jeremiah is the story of God's punishment of the nation of Judah for breaking his covenant with them. Remember, this is a covenant relationship. God said, I will be your God. And, and this covenant was established um, as they were getting ready to cross the River Jordan. Moses gave them the, the covenant of blessings and curses. Blessings if you follow God and curses if you don't. He sent Jeremiah to tell them what was coming and to explain to them, and this is really what's important, explain to them why it was happening. Um, I think that uh, if God doesn't tell them why this is coming, then it's too easy to uh, lay the blame for, for something else. You know, oh, this is just bad luck, this is whatever. But Jeremiah made it pretty clear to the people of Judah uh, why they were were being punished and and um, that God had just run out of patience with them. So Shane looked at chapter thirteen last week and we saw um, the little block where God told the people that they weren't going to change and He knew that that they weren't going to change any more than a leopard can change its spots. And in spite of Jeremiah's repeated warnings and his best effort to get Judah to listen. They they don't show haven't shown any inclination to believe him. So as chapter fourteen begins, and that's where we'll be today. It's chapter fourteen. Um, I'm going to kind of look read the the lead in here. We're going to focus mostly on verses eleven to sixteen. But um, as chapter fourteen begins, we see Judah in the midst of a severe drought, and it was sent by God as part of the punishment to be inflicted on Judah. And, Je- and Jeremiah is trying to in- intercede for Judah. Jeremiah is the son of a priest, Hilkiah. Um, Hilkiah was actually the priest that found the book of the law in the temple, took it to Josiah, who was the king at the time, and Josiah read it and said, oh my gosh, what have we been doing? And he instituted a whole lot of reforms in the, in the land, tore down a lot of idols and... Uh, really led the, the people in a good way, but then he, he uh, passed away, and uh, his son didn't do so well. But because of Josiah, I think Jeremiah was, was raised in that environment where he saw his dad ministering for the people. He had a love for the people, and uh, he had a heart for saving the people of Judah, even though God had told him that punishment was coming. And uh, I think that 
this is just my feeling reading Jeremiah, I think that Jeremiah really has a hard time understanding how God could bring utter destruction and punishment on his people. Because he is those people, you know? He's part of that. And it's just, I think he, he just doesn't want to accept that this is really coming, even though he knows it is. He believes God, but it's still just so, he, he keeps intervening. He keeps saying, God, really? Can't, is, can't we do something to, you know, do something different here? Um, so we see Jeremiah praying to God for the people of Judah to be delivered from the drought. And uh, so the, the first, let's start with, when we, as, the, as the chapter opens, God is talking to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns. They find no water. They return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. Now, verse 7, Jeremiah responds to God. He says, though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. He's pleading with God for his people. And God answers him again. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Jeremiah is trying to remind God, as if he needs reminding, that he is the hope of Israel and that Judah is dependent on him. God is having none of that. So now we'll look at, uh, let's, let's start in verse 11, and this, is this next section, 11 to 16, is where we're going to really focus today. The Lord said to me, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry, and though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Then I said, O oh Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. 
and the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. So you hear what God is saying here? He's telling Jeremiah that his mind is made up. It's a done deal. He says, don't even pray for these people. I'm not going to listen to you. That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? It seems, it does to Jeremiah. Um, after all, God's supposed to be all about love and forgiveness, right? Do you know what God is really all about in, in here? Justice. God is just. He is a holy, righteous God, and he cannot be unjust. He demands payment for sins against him. And Jeremiah is still pleading for mercy. But God has already shown tremendous mercy to this people. I was kind of curious just how long. When you, when you look in the, uh, the genealogies that are given in Matthew, it, it talks about 14 generations, 14 generations starting with, uh, with Adam, and then 14 more after the people. I'm forgetting where the division is, Alan. There's 14, 14, and 14. Uh, the last 14 are between... Uh, Doggone it. I had this all down and I forgot. Sorry. Anyway, by my count, when I went through and looked at that, if you look at Salmon, the father of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, Salmon was with Joshua at Jericho because Salmon fathered Obed with Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute that hid the spies at Jericho so that um, they wouldn't be found out. They could go back and report to Joshua. And, and, uh, and so Joshua promised them that they would be spared if she saved her fam, if she kept her family in, in her quarters, put a red flag out window, and they would let him go. So when you count from Salmon up to the, to the um, deporting to Babylon, which is where they're at right now, that's, that's very imminent. It was four, uh, 17 generations since Joshua died and the judges came. 17 generations. Now, if you look at a generation, depends on how many years you ascribe to it, but if you, if you figure about 30 years, then you're looking at somewhere between 550 and 600 years that God has put up with them breaking the covenant because they broke it as soon as, Jer as Joshua died. The Bible says that every man did what he thought was right. And the judges had to, were sent to, they, God would punish them with, with infliction of uh, somebody like the Philistines or you know one of the other tribes surrounding them, and then he would send a judge to save them. That was a repeated cycle. The people would repent, and then they would get in trouble again, and then he would send another judge. Seventeen generations. So God has shown tremendous mercy. Mercy 
I, I don't remember now where I, I got this from. It's been a long time, but I, I just always makes me think about it. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It means we deserve something bad to happen to us. God withholds it. That's mercy. Justice is getting what we deserve. Not, not some random harshness, but getting what we truly deserve. And then grace, that we're fortunate to be under today if we, if we believe in Jesus Christ, is getting a gift that we do not deserve. Because none of us deserves to be saved or spared by God, but because of Jesus and the grace that God has shown us through him, we get that. Um, I ran across a little story from R.C. Sproul that I thought was a good uh, illustration. He said, when I was a young college teacher, I had the task of teaching 250 freshmen in college a course called Introduction to the Old Testament. On the first day of class, I had to give out the assignments, and I had to be very careful about what the requirements were because they'll twist them any way they can to get out from under them. And I said, look, we have just a few little term papers here, three to five pages or two to four pages, short little papers, four of them. If you don't turn them in on time, you get an F on the assignment unless you were confined to the infirmary or have a death in the immediate family. I had to spell that out for them. I said, does everybody understand? Oh, yes, we agree, they responded. So I said, the first one's due September 30th. On September 30th, 225 students, remember he's teaching 250, 225 students diligently came forward with their term papers. 25 of the students were standing there shivering and shaking in fear, and they said, oh, Dr. Sproul, we didn't get our papers done. We didn't budget our time. We didn't make the transition from high school to college. Please don't give us an F. Let us have a couple days extension. I said, okay, I'll let you have it this time, but don't let it happen again. Remember now, next month, I want those papers here on time. Then October 30th came. 200 students came with their term paper. 50 of them didn't have their term paper. I said, where's your term papers? They said, oh, professor, everybody's term papers were due this week, and this week was homecoming, and we were busy with floats and all that stuff. Please give us one more chance. So I said, okay, you sound like kids. Okay, I'll give you a two-day extension. And you know what happened? They began to sing spontaneously. We love you, Professor Sproul. Yes, we do. I was the most popular professor on campus until November 30th. On November 30th, 150 students came with their term papers. The other 100 walked in like they were going down the street for a loaf of bread. They were casual and relaxed. I said, Johnson? He said, yes, sir. I said, where's your term paper? He said, hey, hey, Prof, you, you know, don't worry about it. I'll have it for you in a couple of days. I took out the black book, and I said, Johnson? He said, yes. I said, F. Ewalt, where's your paper? I don't have it, sir, he replied. I said, F. Cunningham, F. About that time, someone in the back of the room shouted out. You can guess what they shouted. That's not fair. Patrick, did you say that, I asked? He said, yes. I said, you said that's not fair? And he said, right. I said, do I recall that you didn't turn your paper in on the time the last time? He said, that's right. 
I said, okay, if you want justice, you're going to get justice. And I wrote F for both papers. I said, anybody else? Anybody else want justice? Ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand the difference between justice and mercy. The minute you think God owes you mercy, a bell should go off in your brain that warns you that you're no longer thinking about mercy. By definition, mercy is voluntary. God is never obligated to be merciful to a rebellious creature. He doesn't owe you mercy. As he has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's in Romans 9. A holy God is both just and merciful, never unjust. There is never an occasion in any page of sacred scripture where God ever punishes an innocent person. So I'll leave you with this. This is R.C. Sproul finishing up. When you say your prayers, don't ever ask God to give you justice. He might do it. So Jeremiah then tries to give the people of Judah, after God has laid all this out, a way out. He wants to shift the blame. It's not their fault. It's, it's those prophets. It's the prophets that are talking to the people. They're the real culprits. After all, they've been telling the people that there won't be sword or famine. In fact, there will be assured peace in this place. And God's response is not what Jeremiah wants. We, we just read this, but I'm going to look at it again. He said, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own mind. So he goes on to say that um, what's going to happen to those prophets. But then verse 16, the last part of this, he says, And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. There's a message here that I think should rock every one of us to our very soul. This is important. And it, it just kind of jumped out at me as I was reading this. God said he would punish the false prophets. We, we can all get on board with that, right? After all, they lied. They lied about God's word. They, they spoke things in the name of God that, God never gave to them. But look what else is there. The people who listen to them are being punished. They're not excused because they were lied to by false prophets. You see, the implication here is that God expects us, when we hear that kind of a message, to know that we're being lied to. And He expects us to not follow those kind of teachings. So we look at that at that situation in Judah. Why were the prophets telling those lies and making up fake messages? Well, because that's what the people wanted to hear. I told you this wasn't an easy book. Jeremiah's message, the true word of God, was not popular with the people. They didn't want to hear about the punishment that was coming. Who does? Who wants to hear that they've been bad for so long that horrible consequences are on the way and they can't do anything about it? I'm guessing that prestige, power, recognition, probably money too, all had something to do with the motivation for those prophets. And there's other places in, in, the, in the 
Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, where, where God warns about this. Isaiah 56, 10 through 12. He says, uh, talking about Israel, he says, His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Micah says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouth. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips for there is no answer from God. These two passages that we just read um, have been a couple that I've struggled with ever since I started getting serious about the Word of God and, and acting as an elder. There's a pretty big warning here. The watchmen, the, the overseers, those are, uh, are just other terms for elders of the, of the tribe of Israel. They're expected to do God's will, not to lead the people in the wrong direction. So, but aren't you glad there aren't any false prophets or teachers around today? <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. So, um, let me tell you a, a story. This is this really happened with Tammy and I. One of the reasons, we used to be part of the, uh, well, it was the American Lutheran Church when we got married. And then uh, it, over years, there were some mergers, and we ended up being part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA. It's become quite, um, well, a very liberal denomination. And um, one of the warnings that, that we also see is that, um, well, let me give you this scripture, and then I'll go back to my, my story. Second Timothy 4, 2 through 5. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So the warning here is, is that there will come a time, there has come a time, when people don't want to hear the truth, they don't want to hear sound teaching because they don't like it. It bothers them. And they have itching ears and they will look for people that will satisfy that itch. And a lot of times the people that, that step up to do that do so not out of any, I don't think they do it out of malice. I don't think they do it out of any premeditated sense of evil. But they want to please people. And so they tell them what they want to hear. 
So what happened with us, by the time we got to Ketchikan, Alaska, in the ELCA, the national church, the ELCA national um, body, put out a study on human sexuality. They called it a study. Part of that study, uh, it had a lot of things in it that were bad, but the one that really jumped out at, at me at the time because I was struggling, I was already starting to struggle with the idea that what I was reading in Scripture didn't match up with what I was hearing from the pulpit. That should be a red flag, folks. No matter who it is in the pulpit, if, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, you need to, to really be finding out why and probably finding somebody else to listen to. So anyway, um, part of what was in this human sexuality study was a statement that because in 1 Kings there's a, a verse where after Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in, a, in battle and that news was brought to David, he and, his, and Jonathan were very, very close friends and fellow soldiers. Um, David said he, in mourning that he and Jonathan, that he had loved Jonathan with a love greater than you have for a woman. That is meant in the, in the context of a soldier's love for his fellow soldier, his placement of his life in their hand, the bond that they have on the battlefield. This study twisted that around to say, well, then Jonathan and David must have had a homosexual relationship. And therefore, that must be okay. And so as a church, we're going to start saying that that's an okay thing. You see where this is going? It was false teaching, blatantly false teaching. And they used Scripture, twisted Scripture, to come up with it. The other thing that happened almost right after that, uh, Tammy was sent from our church as a delegate to a, a synod meeting. In the Lutheran church, a synod was like a district, I guess, like for us. So she went out there to this district meeting, and they were discussing all this stuff. And uh, one of the representatives from one of the other churches was, was very adamant about um, supporting uh, homosexual unions and homosexual pastors and a um, bunch of stuff. And... Uh, Tammy brought up to him, well, Paul says here, you know, read some scripture, and the response she got was, well, you can't trust Paul. He was a lawyer. This guy just, just threw out 80% of the New Testament because there's really not that much that's written. I mean, there are other authors. There's John and there's Peter and there's Jude, but they don't really... You know, you start looking at the content, the amount of content, the epistles of Paul are by far and away the greatest amount of Scripture in the New Testament. But he was a lawyer. You can't trust that. Wow. So the New Testament is full of warnings about false teachers. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15, um, he says, and what I am doing, this is Paul, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And there, there are, are many, I'm not going to read all these, I'm not going to read as much as I had planned because I see that my time is getting away from me more than I thought it would. Um, but there are, and I'd be glad to provide a list to anybody that's interested, a copy of my, my uh, slides up there. There is just a lot of warnings in the New Testament. Paul and Peter and John, they knew that this stuff was coming. They knew that there would be people trying to pervert the, the message and trying to lead people astray. And uh, Jesus also, Jesus in Matthew 7.15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then the other one I want to read for you, the scripture reading, is because uh, it resonates with me as, uh, as an elder. As Paul was traveling from uh, his mission work to go back to Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to get arrested and put on trial, he stopped in, uh, I forget what port it was, but he sent for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him. And he talked to them. And one of the things he said is, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So we do have a lot of false teachers out there today, and God expects us to pick up on that and not to follow them. So then the question becomes, how are we supposed to, to do that? What is our, our means of doing that? Well, our, our most powerful weapon is, is the Word. Um, we have Scripture that tells us that we, what God really says, and we're expected to know what that is and how to, to counter people that are, are saying dangerous things. Um, there are different types of false teachers. And I'm not, you notice I'm not saying false prophets. Um, there are some that call themselves prophets. And that, again, is, is something we have to be careful of. There are, in, the word prophet in the Old Testament referred to the prophets that God gave his divine revelation to 
and that became Scripture. Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Micah, many others. All the, the major prophets and the minor prophets, which aren't, aren't not divided by their uh, importance. They're divided by the, the, the length of the books that they wrote. Uh, those prophets heard directly from God. And then when, uh, when Jesus came and called the apostles to him, and he then left, was crucified, gave that ministry over to the apostles, at that point, God's revelation had been given um, through the Old Testament, and then he, he spoke through Paul, through Peter, through the apostles, got more t uh, scripture in the New Testament. Um, but New Testament also tells us that, that that's done. We have received the full revelation from God through his word, and it's up to us now as a church with, uh, with leadership from pastors and, and uh, teachers to use that word that's already been given us to interpret what God is telling us. And uh, there's a couple spots where John in Revelations tells, says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the books of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Paul tells the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So we are told Scripture is true and it's complete. It's not to be added to, it's not to be taken away from, and it's not to be twisted to gain our own agenda from it. Um, I think I'm going to have to kind of wrap this up, and I apologize for, uh, I just had more to say than I guess than I had time to, to talk about. I do want to leave you with this, though. This is, um, was going to be my final point. What kind of test can we use when we're listening to teaching, when we're reading things that are put out there for us, to decide if, um, if a doctrine or principle that a teacher or pastor is giving us is, is true and in accordance with Scripture. One, first one is, where did that doctrine come from? Sound doctrine originates with God. False doctrine originates with someone or something created by God. Okay? If it didn't come from God, then it's not something that we should be um, paying its, uh, attention to. How do we know if it came from God? Well, we look at Scripture. Sound doctrine is consistent with the whole of Scripture. False doctrine is inconsistent with at least some parts of Scripture. And Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible. What it says in one place, it won't refute in another. 
there may be some issues that you have to work through to understand. And that's where, um, where people like Shane and Tyler, teachers, um, you know, come with those questions. Sound doctrine also has value for godly living. And false doctrine leads to ungodly living. One of the things that comes to mind is the prosperity gospel. If um, you're not aware of what that is, there's a teaching in some of the churches, especially the mega churches right now, names like Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen. Um, the message is, well, there's two things. One is that we have the power to make our lives good. It's all about attitude and how we approach life. But then the other big thing, the way they call it the prosperity gospel, is that if you're not being blessed financially by God, it's because you're not giving enough to the church. Okay? So if you want God to bless you, give more money to the pastor or to the project that the pastor is pushing or you know, scripture tells us that God likes a, loves a cheerful giver, but it does not tell us that um, that we should be expecting God to to um, make our life better if we give more money. That is just false teaching, and it should be recognized as such. Sound doctrine originates with God, is recorded in the Word of God, consistent with the whole revelation of God and leads to both spiritual health and godly living. So here's the bottom line. Don't just accept what you hear from a preacher or a pastor or a Bible teacher or an elder as true without looking into God's Word. That includes me. Don't believe what I tell you if it's inconsistent with this, with the Bible. It includes me, Shane, Alan, anybody else that might be in this pulpit Someone that is sincerely preaching sound biblical doctrine will welcome questions and be willing to explain their position in light of Scripture. If they're not, it's a big red flag. So I'm going to finish with, uh, this is from Dr. Bert Parkins, Parsons. Uh, he's the editor of Table Talk magazine, serves as a senior pastor at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. False teachers creep into the church not because they look like false teachers, but because they look like angels. They disguise themselves just as their master Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When false teachers attempt to creep into the church, they typically don't look like wolves because they wear sheep costumes and use some of the same language that the sheep use. They, use, they regularly quote scripture, they're often able to quote more scripture than the average Christian. False teachers are not always argumentative or divis divisive. Often they are some of the nicest people we know. They usually creep in not with scowls on their faces, but with big smiles. They don't normally creep into churches and teach obvious heresies and falsehoods. They usually subtly question the truth and teach partial truths. And they're not always identified by what they actually teach, but by what they leave out of their teaching. They often speak of Jesus, salvation, the gospel, and faith, but they twist the words and concepts of Scripture to fit their own versions of the truth, which is no truth at all. They typically don't attempt to creep into churches where the Word of God is preached boldly and passionately, 
in season and out of season and where the people are eager for the sound preaching of Scripture and are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, they usually target those churches where people are indifferent to doctrine and apathetic about the preaching of the Word of God. The surest way, then, to prevent and stop the spread of false teaching is for Christian leaders and lay people, pastors and parishioners, teachers and learners, to be committed to the sound preaching of God's Word and to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Only then will false teachers be recognized for who they are and the sheep of Christ be protected from error for God's glory according to God's unchanging truth. I think he nailed it pretty well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, is trustworthy and reliable and is truth. Lord, we pray for your wisdom and discernment in uh, recognizing when untruth is being taught, especially when it's being taught in your name and presented as your word. Help us, Father, to be able to, to know that and, uh, and to counter it. Help us be able, Lord, to spread the true message, your gospel, and help us, Lord, to be the workers in your kingdom. Uh, as we go out this day, Lord, we ask that you use us and uh, just ask for your help in doing that. We ask all this in Jesus Christ. Amen. You want to stand with us as we sing? Probably the song that's being sung all across the world at the mm -hmm. moment, but it's a good reminder.
To those who are called, wrapped in the love of God and the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. Amen. Have a good week and happy Father's Day.